Thank you, worship team, both this morning and this evening for guiding our worship today and helping us as we worship the Lord together. We're grateful for each one of you. Again, thank you. Take your Bibles this evening as we turn to look into God's Word. We're turning again to the book of Jude, turning to the book of Jude, and we're coming now toward the last few messages in this study of this powerful epistle to the church. And we're coming tonight to direct our focus and our attention to Jude, verses 14 through 16. Jude, verses 14 through 16, and we, again, are coming down to the final section of this book, maybe two or three messages left in it, and God has used it to be a powerful uh, help to our church, our strength, strengthen our faith, and to show us the truth of the day, but also not only in Jude's day, but also the church today, and to be on guard against the teaching that we expose ourselves to, and and uh, just to have discernment, which is so severely lacking in the professing modern church uh, today. And so we continue that study. The title of tonight's message is The Certain Judgment. Key emphasis on the word certain, and that will be the theme throughout the message tonight. The Certain Judgment of Apostates, Jude 14 through 16. So let's look into God's Word. And Jude writes this. He says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, about these men, again, we're continuing the study of these characteristics of these apostates. He prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth or use great swelling words, flattering people to gain an advantage. This is the word of God. Already Jude has continued to give us lest we be mistaken exactly who Jude is talking about. These examples of apostasy, we've already looked at verses 5 through 7, of unbelieving Israel, the rebellious angels, the unbelieving Gentiles, all from the Old Testament. The last number of sermons we've looked at together, last three or four times together, verses 8 through 13, he has shown the influence that these apostates have upon the professing church in their unholy boldness, their unholy ignorance, their unholy ambition, and last time together we saw their unholy presence and the metaphors that he gives there to describe. Looking back into verse 13, they are raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So now he returns to this theme that he introduced in verse 4, and that theme is the word ungodly. Ungodly. You see, going back to verse 4, for certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. That's the theme of the message, this certain judgment. They were marked out for this condemnation. And notice again the use of the word ungodly. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So he returns back to this introductory theme there in verse 4 in a circular or cyclical way. He comes back to it, and he brings up the message, the certain future that they have, is that these individuals have been designated for condemnation. Verse 13, wandering stars for whom is reserved 
the blackness of darkness forever. Now here, Jude just gives a, a simile or some examples of words that describe eternal punishment, hell. When we piece these things together, it gives us, and I'm talking about the totality of Scripture, the New Testament, the teachings of Christ, an understanding of what hell is. He introduces that there in verse 13, the very end. It is the blackness of darkness forever and ever. And so as we come into verses 14 through 16, our focus for tonight, this is the theme, and it's one that we all need to be reminded of, is the fact that God will judge the ungodly one day. Many people do not believe this, by the way. Many people dismiss the doctrine of hell. They dismiss the doctrine of judgment. They dismiss the doctrine of the great white throne judgment as something that God is a, a great Santa Claus in the sky. He is a grandfatherly type of figure. And, and, and that's the fault, the reason people think this, that's the fault of the pulpit today. God's judgment is never preached. I say never, often not preached on. Um, again, to pick up the theme of the men that Jude is describing, excuse me, <clears throat> that Jude is describing, they often think of those who are popular, those who have wide influence, those who have a, um, a showy ministry, if you will, that does not hold forth the truth of Scripture or the Word of God. There are some examples of those, but they are very few and far between. The reason these people have influence is because they tickle ears and they tickle men's ears and tell men today what they want to hear. And part of what they want to hear is not about hell and judgment or future judgment, but it's more of just tell me more about me, if you will. And so the fault of the pulpit is that we don't preach these doctrines or preach these certain truths and realities. And so many people, professing Christians, believe that you know, when it comes to hell, we believe in heaven. But when it comes to the doctrine of hell, well, that's just a parable or parable, excuse me, a myth or, or something that God will dismiss. You know, it's thinking, well, I want to stay, stay away from that. So as we come back to our text, this is an absolute certainty that is being described that Jude warns us and we would do well tonight to remember and to bring to the forefront. So what is it that Jude's warnings are telling us? Well, number one, in verse 14, he's telling us the certainty of judgment. The first thing we see in this text is the certainty of specifically the apostate's judgment. There in verse 14, notice what he says, picking up and connecting to verse 4, prophesied from long ago. The certainty of their judgment prophesied long, long ago. Now as we bring in this certainty of judgment, this is a quote that Jude brings into play from a book that is now known, it was not known then as this, but the book of First Enoch. Today it's known as the book of First Enoch. And, and here Jude is simply quoting from it. This is, uh, the, the book of Enoch particularly is not scripture. In fact, when you look at verses 14 and 15, uh, Jude is using a paraphrased quote from the book of First Enoch. And so scripture is silent on the fuller prophecy that Jude mentions, but here we just see a, a clip that Jude decides to reference or to refer to. Don't ask me to explain the full in-depth aspects of this. I'm just going to state the facts of it, the fact that Jude quotes from it. Some people will say, well, I don't like that. Well, it's just, it's here. It's what it is. We can be confident in the inspiration, the doctrine, the inspiration of the Scriptures, and that the Holy Spirit superintended this writing of Jude's epistle. And in the same way, we see examples in the writings or the New Testament writings, Paul in Acts 17, 28, uh, in his famous sermon on Mars Hill, he quotes from 
uh, popular pagan authors of the day to make a point. And whenever you do this, I was talking with a brother today, you don't overqualify everything, and don't ask me again to give you a fuller explanation, but notice how Paul doesn't say, now I don't agree with everything, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, but Paul just simply makes a point, and then he begins to continue preaching the main point of what he's trying to say. Don't ask me to try to defend Paul or Jude, I'm just simply preaching the text here tonight, and I'm, I'm content to let the tensions of the text be just that. And so I just want you to know that because we've already had a number of conversations. When you study the book of Jude, people want to know, why is he quoting First Enoch? And why is he quoting these extra canonical um, books? And I don't, ultimately, I don't know. But he has no problem. But one thing we can say for sure, he has no problem doing it. But in the Jewish mindset, they were very well-versed. These were popular works that they were very well-versed in. And so Jude pulls from this aspect of this extra canonical writing, the future certain judgment that even Enoch preached upon and prophesied of. So again, just a statement I want to give you. I wrote, put this in my notes to make sure I was clear. This does not mean that Jude believed everything in First Enoch was true, but that this particular statement um, is true. Thomas Minton, the Puritan, says this. He says, many books have been lost throughout the years, but no scripture ever has been. And when I read it, I thought, that's a good word, Manton, absolutely. So what we find here is that because Jude's writing is inspired by the Holy Spirit, we can, we can trust it. We can, we can trust it even though he's referring to extra-canonical books. And so he evokes, invokes Enoch. Notice there with me in the text. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. More about that in just a moment. But notice how he makes the distinguishing mark there, the seventh from Adam. That's because there's more than one Enoch in Scripture. He wants us to know specifically which one he's talking about. He wants us to know that this is the, the specific one. This is the one that walked with God. This is the one who was seven generations from the very first man. And how this man walked with God. Enoch was a man of righteousness. Enoch walked with God, the Scripture tells us. And then one day, he was not because God took him. Enoch was very, very popular in the Jewish culture in the first century context because of this unique privilege that he had. And so I think that's why Jude is picking up on it, trying to pull in his audience and saying, you reverence Jude. Well, remember, this is what Jude preached about according to what this reference is. So the certainty of their judgment. Secondly, we notice the captain of their judgment there in verse 14. Behold, the Lord, it was foretold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. So here, Jude is pointing to the reality of Christ's coming. And friends, I want to remind us tonight that Christ is coming not just the first time, as we give lots of attention to the, the first ascension, excuse me, the first coming of Christ, uh, the cross of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, but the return of Christ. Now, this is something that, by the way, apostates don't preach a lot on because they don't believe in it. For an apostate to preach in the second coming of Christ would mean that he's coming to come get them. <laughs> this is something that they're not very popular in, or it's not warm and fuzzy for them. It's not comforting for them. So again, as we just think about what are hallmarks of who, who, who would these people be like in our world today? Well, again, I think it's a natural deduction that we can withdraw. Matthew 13 is a wonderful parallel to this. And so I want you to turn there, Matthew chapter 13, that helps us to fill in some of the gaps here. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints. Well, Jesus gives further teaching on this in Matthew chapter 
13, and so does Paul in his epistles. Matthew 13, 36, Then Jesus sent the multitude away, and he went into the house. And his disciples came to him, asking of him, saying, Lord, would you explain to us the parable of the tares of the field? And he answered, verse 37, and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. That's going to be helpful for us as we kind of fill in the gaps on what, what Judas is describing. He comes with ten thousands of his saints or his holy ones. Here in Matthew 13, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age in the same way. Verse 41, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And then Jesus summarizes his explanation with this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Moving to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, just very quickly, Paul also makes mention of this one fact that the judgment, the future judgment of Christ, will involve angels. As we think about the usage of the word his saints or his holy ones, that word as it's used in Scripture can refer to the children of God, but also it's referred to angels as well. And I believe in this context in Jude's teaching, and the way Paul used it, he's referring to the angels who do the bidding and work of God, who execute and carry out God's providence in our lives. They will also be involved in the future judgment. Second Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.4, Paul writes, he says, So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest of the righteous judgment of God so that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, church, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, notice here, with his mighty angels. Verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Notice that language there. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those, number one, who do not know God, and on those who do not obey, key word here, obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction, which is from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Part of what this judgment is as it's executed, notice what, the way Paul describes it and picking up uh, in a complementary way to Jesus' teaching. They shall be punished from the presence of the Lord. What is the Lord? He is the light. He himself will be our light in his glorious righteousness. And that's why Jude kind of picks up on this language in Jude's epistle. Speaking of, they are wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So we can conclude among all the descriptions of what hell is, it includes fire, it includes separation, it includes no foundation, it includes estrangement. Here Jude gives emphasis to the fact that it is black. In other words, there is an absence of light or it is, it is dark. 
It is separation from the presence of the glorious God in Christ when he comes that day to be glorified in his saints. This is the captain of their judgment. Notice with me verse 15, some aspects of it. It is a personal judgment. Going back to Jude's epistle, Jude gives us some very specifics about what this is and what it will consist of. This judgment is a personal judgment, verse 15, to execute judgment on all. Well, what do you mean by that? All, Jude. All who are like this. Notice the description. To convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The captain of this judgment is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But notice the language here, against him. The context of Jude's epistle is the church. Jesus is no longer technically in the church. Revelation tells us he walks among his church for sure. Obviously, he is praying for his church, but he is not present here. So I want to make a connection here that may be helpful for us. Our young people Wednesday night and, and actually all of Adventure Club, we were studying about the wonderful conversion of Saul before he became Paul. And in Acts chapter 22, verse 7, the Holy Spirit, or God, speaks to him directly on the road to, on, that he's traveling on there to, to um, Damascus. Anyway, he says to him, he says, why are you, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, what does he mean by that? It, it, Saul's ambition is to completely destroy the church, to plunder the church, destroy the church, to tear apart the church. So when he says, why are you persecuting me, what is he saying? When you affect and afflict the body of Christ, you are persecuting me. The church is me and I am the church. Matthew, uh, Ephesians 5, the Lord Jesus Christ loved the church and he gave himself for the church to secure her salvation. He poured out his blood for the church. So when we come to Jude's usage of this, as they, these are ungodly sinners who have spoken against him. These are those who come within the church of Christ and afflict the saints of Christ. They speak against Christ by their treatment or false teaching of the church. And because of this, this their judgment will be specific. It will be personal. You can say it like this. When, when those who in the great white throne are judged by Christ, they will not be with a crowd they will not be with their best friends. And I think a lot of times people think like that. They think with what we call group think. We, we can begin this, I don't know, it's just part of our nature. I'm hanging out with my friends, highway to hell, life's a party, we're going to have just a big time. And hey, listen, it's like detention. And we all know what happens in detention, right? We or throw spit wads and goof around and there's no supervision and you know, it's like this, this jovial flippancy about what the reality of this thing is. And people, I don't think, give any sense of thought or meditation of the fact that they will stand face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, personally. Best buddy's not here. Mom and dad aren't here. It's them, their soul, before their maker, their creator, God. And friends, that's sobering. There's no shielding. There's no hedging. There's no hiding there's no standing in in the crowd no it's just we're there we're there alone excuse me these individuals are there and they're standing before the lord now i want to make a distinction this is the great white throne judgment this is distinguished this is not where the those who are safe in christ 
They will have an accounting before the Lord, whether their works be wood, hay, stubble, whether they are gold, which passes the eyes of fire, the, the test, if you will. But listen, this is not the same thing. The believers will give an accounting, you could describe it as, before their Lord, whom they love, and he loves them. This is for unbelievers. This is the great white throne judgment. So it is a personal judgment. Another thing we see here is that it is a public or powerful judgment. Angels will participate, particularly as he sends them to gather up these individuals. And at the top of the crew that Jesus will be pouring out his vengeance upon is not just the lost, but particularly those who are not only lost, but destroyed his bride. Now, when I say destroy his bride, we're causing conflict within his bride. Ultimately, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, have success against his church. Jude himself wants us to know in verse 24 that he is able to keep us from stumbling or falling. He will be able to present us faultless before the presence of his majesty with exceeding joy. So we understand the totality and finality of it. But these are those who come in and persecute the church, afflict the church, bring about great stress upon the church. These are the terrors who corrupt the good seed of the word of God. And as you kind of parallel just a couple of things, we won't keep going back to Matthew 13, but what we find is when we compare Matthew 13 to Jude here, we find that Jesus is the one directing the scene. And for those of you taking notes, Matthew 13, 41, the Son of Man will send his angels. He will initiate this judgment. Secondly, we find that in this public judgment, the angels are the ones who will go about executing the will of God, Jude 14, his holy ones. The angels will execute his command and then we see that this judgment will be absolutely terrifying. Matthew 13, 42, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then this judgment will be a vindication of all that is right. Matthew 13 that we read just a moment ago, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And Jesus gives this warning, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen, friends, Judas was listening to this. Jesus is saying, let him Oh, Jesus, you're preaching to the choir. Yes, and the choir has Judas's in them, right? So Jesus says, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus knew, excuse me, Jesus, Judas knew the truth. Jesus, Judas heard the truth, and yet Judas rejected the truth. So when we think about our future judgment of God, we should not speak of God's future judgment upon sinners without recognizing that it is something that, that we all deserve as well. You and I are, apart from the mercy of God in Christ, listen, we're right here. This was us. To quote Paul, I was a vile offender. Paul never got away from what God saved him from. Paul never got over what he was before the grace of God came and conquered his soul on that road, that public highway. Friends, as we think about this future judgment for unbelievers, this was us before Christ. This was our future. This was what was awaiting us. This was our destiny, you could say. He, yet he has forgiven us, he has saved us, and he has shown us his mercy. And so our message even today is we think about foretelling this message, the reality of a certain judgment upon not only these apostate teachers, but upon all the ungodly, as Jude gives us the theme here, these are ungodly people who use ungodly words and ungodly deeds in an ungodly way. These are ungodly sinners. Listen, our message to them is to repent of their sin and to turn to Christ and live, to run to Christ. By the way, many would argue that, that Paul, who was Saul, showed every evidence of being an apostate teacher. 
before he came to faith in Christ. The bottom line is you and I, we just don't know. So our job, in the same way, if someone says, why don't you preach the gospel to only the, the elect and to quote Spurgeon, we'll pull up their shirts and maybe I would if I knew who they were, like, like there's an E stamped on their back. and It's being facetious. No, we, we preach the gospel to everyone, knowing that God calls his people to himself. Well, in the same way, we don't know who the apostates are, so our message is the same. I mean, we have characteristics that are here, but ultimately it's repent of your sin, turn to Christ, run to Christ, recognizing that that is the only hope that anyone has. Come to Christ, be reconciled to be God. To God, That is our, our message. So our, my goal here is to keep us right in the center of what God has called us to do as we think about these warnings that Jude has given to us. A third sub-point that we see here is this is a promised judgment. He comes to execute judgment upon all. This has been promised in advance. This is the same judgment that Jude has kind of been repeating again and again in this, in this passage. In this short epistle, John chapter 3, verse 18, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed the name of the only begotten Son of God. A fourth thing we see here is that this is a particular judgment. These individuals will be confronted with their sins. Notice what Jude describes here, their deeds, their words. There will be no confusion here. There will be no mistake here. I, I don't know how this will be transpired or relayed, but the reality is, as Jude wants us to know, Scripture wants us to know that there's no misplacing of paperwork. This is their words. Jesus himself says every idle word that is spoken will be brought into judgment. This is the omniscient judge Christ who will bring these things to bear. So what men think are hidden things or in secret things or in the dark or behind closed doors, in reality, what we understand by the nature of what this judgment is is that there are no secrets, friends. There are no closed door conversations, ultimately. There are no secret things hidden from, from God. These individuals will be judged and confronted with their sins that they have not repented of, their deeds that they would not forsake, their words that came from their heart, from their lips. This word convict means to convince, to make plain, to bring to light. And an example that we see here is in Matthew 25 where the description is given of the separation of the sheep and the goats. Our individual condition is known by, by our shepherd, by God himself. And he will make the distinguishing between those who are blessed and those who are, who are cursed. Number three, we come to, thirdly, the convictions in their judgment. We can ask this question, is what people and what actions and what sins will be exposed as ungodly? And I've already touched on this, all ungodly. Notice his comprehensive use of this word, ungodly, ungodly, ungodly people, ungodly deeds, ungodly ways, ungodly speech. This is the thread that Jude is weaving in through this epistle. And I just want to remind us, the word ungodly means no reverence for God. So if you are listening to me tonight and you sit here and you think, am I one of these individuals? Well, I don't know, but I would just ask you search your heart and examine your heart. You could ask yourself this question or those that you may be influenced by is do you have a reverence, a love, and a worship for God that is expressed, notice here, let's flip it, in your deeds, in your ways, in your speech, how you reference him, do you pray to him, do you reverence him? So flip the use of ungodly, we could just say reverence or love. 
listen, I can't speak for you, but as I study this text, I say, God, search me, O God, and try my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me, the man bringing the message. So as we make application to those who may be listening and saying, well, I want to make sure this isn't me. Wonderful, by the way, thought, okay? Flip this as we see this description that is given. These individuals have no reverence. That word ungodly means there is no assent for his person. There is no cognizance of his reality. Uh, it could be, so if you're an individual who comes to church on Sunday or gathers with the people of God, but that's it. Like, in other words, the action is there, but you go home and just sit that to the side and check, we've done that, and then you live your Monday through Saturday with no prayer, no reverence, no seeking. Your, your judgments, or excuse me, your works are, are ungodly in the sense of they're not as unto the Lord and not unto men. Uh, the ungodly ways speaks of motives. So you could say, is your motive of your heart to, to glorify God, whether what, is, what things are seen or, or unseen? Friends, what about your speech? What about in the ways that you use your speech? Do you use your speech for the tearing down or the edifying or the building up? What about towards the church, towards God? Just think about, as I made mention this morning, I can't remember if it was in Sunday school or, but I mean, I'm just, I can only speak from the experience that I live, just how many people take God's name in vain every day of the week. There's probably not one day that goes by in my earthly experience where I do not hear God's name flippantly taken in vain. Well, I love him. You say, LeGrand, that, that's a hobby horse. No, it's not a hobby horse. I, I reverence him. I love him. And when I hear it, my heart grieves for his glory. My heart says, do you know the God you're blaspheming when you say OMG or however the context is? But here, that's what Jude brings in a book, our ungodly speech. Well, when we speak of him, is it in reverence and love for him or the edifying of others as well? Or is it in an ungodly way? Friends, if our actions are only just checklists or, or you know, we only gather with the people of God, uh, basically you'd say what we do is in public alone, but there is no private worship. That might be a sign to us that whether we're either apart from God or we're not close to God or we've wandered from Him or we just don't know Him at all. And these are things maybe the Holy Spirit can nail home and take home to the next level as He convicts and shows us our own heart as we adopt the posture of Psalm 139, Search me, O God. And know my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. By the way, I would tell you, if you're asking these questions, is this me, then that's a good sign too. <laughs> if you're dead and your trespasses and sins, you have no concern. If you're bored and checked out and you don't care about being ungodly and you could give a rip or whatever, that's not a good sign, right? If your soul is, loves God and you say, I know that's not me. All glory be to Christ. Lord, I, that used to be me. And I say, thank you for what you've done in my life. Then wonderful. Or you're struggling and you're confessing and you're rooting out sin. All of that is, is good. And I would exhort you to run to Christ, look to Christ, rest in Christ. Because the apostates that Jude's describing here have no concern. They are using the body of Christ, the name of Christ, the things of Christ for their own lusts, for their own gain, you could say. Lastly, fourthly, we see the character as Jude again gives us another list of those who this is describing, of those who will be judged. And fourthly, we see they are known by their words, they are known by their mouths. And he gives us this list in a couple of things there in verse 16 as we kind of come to a pause with verse 16. He says, these are 
grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain an advantage. So this speaks to their inner character, grumblers. Notice this word is, he invokes again this word grumbling, which ultimately means to complain, it means to uh, to grumble. Literally, it's an onomatopoeic poetic word that, that describes, the word describes the action that the word is using or pointing us to. It literally means to like a mouthful of rocks and you're just angry and you're uttering literally guttural sounds. That's what a grumbler is. And that's in our heart or in action. This is something that needs to be mortified and put away. It is displeasing to the Lord. In fact, God has no problem, listen here, pouring out his wrath upon grumblers. In the Old Testament, we see examples of this. In the Old Testament, we see of people that God judged for their grumbling. In Exodus chapter 16, verses 7 through 9, in Numbers 14, 27, even Jude himself already has already pointed back to the historical examples of apostasy there in verse 5, where he talks about the children of Israel who complained and grumbled against God. So that's what this word means, literally, to blame to find faults. So as we make application, these are individuals who grumble against God in their life. They find fault with His Word, His purpose, His ways. The, the, the way life has gone for them is not what they have planned. So they harden their heart against God. They grumble against God. Another word that he uses here is these are lustful individuals, lust finders. These are self-willed led by their flesh, living lives in pursuit of their own desires, or you could say greed, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, as 1 John chapter 2, 15 describes. These are those who, it's, they're completely sensual beings. When the call of Scripture is to mortify the natural man, to take up our cross and to follow him and to live the life of Christ, these are those who are certainly not preaching that message nor living that reality. These are those who do not deny but give way to. In fact, we can think of, I could, we could spend the rest of the night here giving maybe examples of teachers and preachers who in their preaching ex excuse and explain away sin and say, your same-sex desire is, is, is not bad. That's the way God's made you. And they affirm people in that reality. Or just take different types of sins. That, and I could give examples of individuals, uh, uh, news stories that have come forth this week where they're in their teaching and their preaching. They're coming out of very specific ways and saying, this is no longer a, a sin. Or this is not is what actually the Bible says, this, this, or that. These are those who explain away, affirm people in their flesh. And they themselves are self-willed. You come to find out that uh, they are greedy in regards to money and we need more jets and we need more flash and we need more bling and we need more things all together these are those this is a description of them health and wealth preachers would be the easy pick but i don't want to always go towards the easy pick another word that jude gives here is the description the character of those judge in verse 16 is these are those who walk according to their own lust they mouth great swelling words what does that mean? They're flattering people to gain an advantage. These are boasters. These are schemers. If you need a, a biblical illustration of this, we've already looked at woe to those who have gone in the way of Cain, verse 11. Remember, he gave us these examples. These are those who've gone the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and they perished in the rebellion of Korah. What was it that Korah did? Just by way of review, remember Korah brought about 250 plus men 
with great swelling words, he convinced them to turn against God's man, turn against Moses, turn against God, to grumble against God, and to follow him. And they're going to do a new thing. And we saw how that uh, wound up. Now, I will close. We're closing on this verse 16, this, these characteristics, characteristics given. And as we've talked about the certainty of judgment, the reason, LeGrand, why can you be so certain of what Jude is saying is true? And how can you be so certain that these realities are true? Well, we know they're true, number one, simply because God's word says it. But secondly, we can look to the past. We can look back. We can see how God has judged sin in the life of Cain, Balaam, Korah. We can see how God judged sin on the cross. We can see all throughout the scriptures what God thinks about sin and how God has made provision in the gospel through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of these certain realities, we can look forward to what Jude is describing in the future. And men today may be inoculated in marriage, in giving in marriage, describing what Jesus describes as the days of Noah and the days in the same way the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man comes. And what is that? They'll just be living life, occupied with life, busy, and yet God will return and initiate this next installment of his master redemptive plan. So as we conclude tonight, as looking at Jude's teaching upon these characteristics, the certainty of judgment, I want to conclude by exhorting us here tonight. Have your sins been judged in Christ? Have you looked to Christ for your salvation? Are you resting in Christ for your salvation? A friend, if you have, your judgment has been dealt upon Christ on the cross. You're safe in Christ. In the same way that Noah was a preacher of righteousness and he preached to the men of his day, the women and the children, to turn from their sin. And they said, wait a second. We've never seen any rain. We've never seen any floods. There was a certainty to his message. There was a certainty to what, uh, to what uh, Noah was saying. And ultimately, the message was rejected, and those in his family who were within the ark were safe from the flood waters of God's wrath. All of that is a beautiful picture and metaphor for what we find in Christ. To those who come into the ark, the door, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus says. To those who come to that door that is Jesus Christ, listen, God's judgment will not fall upon you. His judgment has been upon, placed upon his son. So here's the message for us. If that's you, then exalt in and meditate in and on that reality. That Christ was broken for you, that you are safe in Christ. He is your Lord, he is your Savior, and he took the punishment for you. If you do not have that confidence and you're listening to me tonight, then friend, I want to exhort you right here, right now, repent of your sins. By faith, confess Christ Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. Rest in his finished work for you. He says today, he says to the people on the cross who can do nothing. He can't serve Christ. He can't go get baptized. Um, he can't observe the Lord's table. He cannot do some type of act or whatever. All he can do is look upon Jesus with faith, grieved over his 
state, his sin that has brought him to this place, his last and only hope is Jesus. And he looks to Jesus. He started off a blasphemer, a reviler, a persecutor, cursing against God. And the Holy Spirit worked upon his heart to where he says, Lord, would you remember me? I believe. We don't have the whole of the conversation, but the point is, is his, his objective, what he saw changed when he saw the person of Christ upon the cross. And Jesus says, today you shall be with me in paradise. Well, friends, in the same way, look to Jesus and live. Rest in him and him alone. If you do not have that confidence that Jesus Christ is your Lord, then do, do not come and take this table in an unworthy or flippant way. This is for believers. This is for those who are resting in Christ. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you, and our hope is in Christ, our, our Savior. Christ, our hope in life and in death. Father, it's an unusual thing that we often find in our heart that him having not seen, yet we love. We've never seen you with eyes of flesh, but Father, we have seen you with eyes of faith. And that's been a gift from you. Where you opened our eyes to show us our sin, our need for Jesus. No longer a need to hide our sin and to try to manifest righteousness, but Father, just to run and confess we are a sinner who are in great need of a Savior. Father, thank you for saving me from my sin. Thank you for saving my soul. And Father, thank you for saving our souls as each one of us pause and just reflect upon your personal work in our lives. We want to give you praise and glory. We rejoice in God our Savior. Father, by faith as we remember following and your command to your disciples as we observe this table. There's nothing saving in this, in this act or this remembrance. Father, it's simply out of love for you as we remember your work for us. Following in obedience to the Lord's command. Father, our hearts are strengthened and encouraged as we as the family of God observe this table together. We desire to be right with you. We desire, Lord, to be as right with you as we can be. Fellowship full, nothing hindering that. So, Lord, before we observe this table, church, we just want to take a moment just to seek the Lord's face. Just a few moments of prayer and, and solitude. Let's pray together.